Sadducees, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Dave Harvey, in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, writes, Gordon and Emma met at a church function. She was an admirable young woman, and he was a fairly new pastor. The wedding day seemed to be the launch of a godly couple into the promise of a fruitful ministry for decades ahead. But just a few days into their honeymoon, all of Emma's dreams for her life were crushed. Gordon made clear that he didn't love Emma and that he married her simply because there were more opportunities for married pastors than single ones. For 40 years, through the birth of six children and all the while functioning as a pastor, Gordon made no meaningful attempt to kindle love for his wife. Freely admitting to an adulterous affair that began after the birth of their fourth child, Gordon insisted he must remain married. Divorce would derail his pastoral career. Marriage for Emma became a life of secret shame. She was relegated to sharing a room with her two daughters while her husband stayed in a separate room and their four boys in another. This is the part of a true story of a couple. It is not, however, the end of the story. Perhaps you know such tragic stories like this. Tragic for Emma having to live in a loveless marriage. Tragic for Gordon that he's putting on this show of righteousness to all these people every week, and yet it's a complete show. Tragic for children who every day had to live with this hypocrisy between what they're told and presented Sunday morning and what they know is reality at home. Sadly, though, these tragedies still exist today, and they existed during Jesus' time, and that is exactly what Jesus is attacking, because here he comes to these people who give the appearance of all this external righteousness. There's this outward show, but there's no inward reality. They're living a lie, and Jesus is clear, just like Gordon's actions, this life is an abomination before him. If you look along on your bulletin, you can see Jesus is going to attack them first for appearing righteous in verses 14 through 15. But then he's going to show, look, there is still a continuing standard. And lastly, to make clear what he's saying, he's going to give them a test or test of true righteousness. And we have to remember here the section before this, because right before this, Jesus had said, look, in light of eternity, you should be living differently with your money. But now, in light of Jesus' teaching, the Pharisees begin to ridicule him. Your ridicule is a word that almost means nostril. It comes from that. It's the, you know, kind of lifting up your nose and scorn and uh, kind of blowing up. Can't believe them. You know, it's the sneer of contempt. You know, the rich, as they see the poor kid come in in their shabby clothes, and they, <laughs> it's the mocking condescension. 
of the popular as the unpopular kid walks up. However, it's going to get even worse, this mocking, this ridicule of Jesus, because in Luke 23, 35, they will say, and the people stood watching, but the rulers scoffed. It's the same word at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ, the Son of God, his chosen one. We've seen as we've gone through Luke, this growing hatred for Jesus. In Luke 15, we read that they were merely grumbling against Jesus, but now they're openly sneering him, mocking against him. Well, why? Because Jesus has attacked their idolatrous love of money. As you go throughout society, people, oh yeah, I'm fine with God. They're fine with the church. They're okay with Jesus' teaching. Oh, actually, we love Jesus' teachings. Jesus is great. Until you show them everything they taught. And then the veneer of, Niceness of loving God and spirituality comes out for hatred for what God really says. Social politeness gives way to their true feelings. And yet Jesus, he doesn't take their mocking lightly because in verse 15, he attacks them. He says, you are the ones who justify yourselves before men. They live for the applaud of others and making other people think they were holy. An amazing aspect of life is that human nature never changes. 2,000 years ago and today, we love to appear righteous. You know, thankfully, it's not always seen, but sometimes the ugliness of our heart gets spilled out. I remember once there were some people who needed help, and I offered, yes, I know, a rather generous guy, um, thank you, uh, and I called them and I offered, and they said, oh, someone else took care of it. And then to my shame, as I hung up, I said to Sarah, this is wonderful. I don't actually have to help, and I look like I'm a helper. And I was like, ooh, that's ugly. That I, I wanted to give this appearance of being a wonderful helper, but I actually didn't want to go. And so this is wonderful, because you know I get all the props, because that's what I wanted. I wanted people to think I'm a helper. And Jesus says, that's an abomination. That's ugly. When we act that way, when we aren't what we're showing. We're just a facade. And Jesus here is attacking that. And yet, we see this all the time. Y'all know it's not just me. You see it at work when everyone's working hard until the boss goes to lunch. And work grinds to a halt. It's the player who is running their heart out till the coach turns to watch the other players and they start jogging. And then when the coach turns back, they're running hard. It's the driving and then seeing a police officer and slowing down and then you get over the hill, you speed up, and then you see the next police officer and you slow down the brakes again. It's this appearance of, yeah, I'm living the way I should. And yet it's not real. And this happens even around us as we're getting close to a Election time, what are we going to see? A lot of politicians are going to be at soup kitchens. There's going to be a lot of people out there going to the poor neighborhoods. Oh, we, we care for them. We're there for the poor. They're never there when it's not voting time. It's all about this appearance of living a certain way. And the reality is, we can sometimes put on a pretty good show. We can quickly learn that whatever group we're in, if I do these things, they're going to go, hey, he's, he's a good guy. He eats non-GMO, locally sourced food. He's a good guy. Or you might be in the group that goes, 
He doesn't eat locally sourced, and he eats all the carnivore meat he can. Oh, he's a good guy. He's a meat man. And we could go through, we could talk about all the different groups that you learn. If I do this, if I do this action, I say this, then they're going to pat me on the back and go, you're leading a really good life. You're a righteous, moral individual. And we put on this show and we learn how to do it. However, doesn't that really reveal something about us? And that is deep down, we all have this need to appear righteous. That we want others to come and say, you are leading the type of life you should be leading. In Ohio, I met this man, this may sound bizarre, but it's a true story. I met this man who was running an illegal gambling house. However, he assured me, this is not a big deal, because you know it's pastor. It's not a big deal, because before we got this house, the neighborhood was really bad, and the alley was dirty, and we've cleaned it all up, and we keep, the street's really nicer because we're there. He had this sense, as soon as he told me, he had to justify himself that it's okay that we're breaking the law because we're making the neighborhood better. He has to, we have to show, hey, look, proclaim that I'm righteous. Proclaim that I'm living moral. And we might say as a society, there's no absolute values. Just follow your heart. And yet all of us want to be told we're part of that righteous group. And Jesus, though, is saying, look, the heart of the issue, the crux of the matter is not what are your neighbors, what are your friends, what are your family, what do others say about your life? What is God saying? Because the Pharisees seek to be justified before men, but God knows the heart. And Jesus boldly declares, like Gordon from earlier, their seemingly moral and righteous life is an abomination in God's sight. You know, the word for abomination refers to something that stinks, that reeks, is putrid. Last year, the roof liner on my car was hitting my head and falling down, so I took it to someone and got it replaced. And yet the glues they use to hold it up don't smell that good. So when I got home, I would crack my windows. And yet, I then went from the frying pan into the fire because nice open windows with nice upholstery make cats go, oh, this looks like a wonderful place to go to the restroom. And so I got in my car, whoa, oh. <coughs> you can barely drive with the windows down, it smells so bad, oh, just reeks the smell, and it's just all invasive, and you just, you want to get out of the car, get a match, done. And God looks at our actions when we put forward this facade of righteousness, but inside, we're not like that. And he says, oh, that to me stinks. That is ugly. That is putrid. It makes me lift my nose and just want to get away from it. It's not pretty at all. Because God sees, he sees past our self-righteous boasting, and it stinks to him. It's a putrid smell in his nostrils. Proverbs 16.5 declares, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. And so while the Pharisees appear to all their peers as righteous, Jesus sees past the show. And whereas humans, we can only see someone's actions, we don't know their motivations, God sees past. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So where do you stand 
in relation to God today. Not what all of us think. You know, the Pharisees, they would have been at church every Sunday. They knew all the right theological answers. And as long as the pastor didn't touch on the wrong issues, oh yeah, good job, pastor, love church, wonderful thing. Until Jesus touches their idol, ooh, then that makes them mad. Then their hypocritical lifestyle flares up into anger. You know, are there certain... Don't talk about those issues, Pastor, because if you talk about those, I'm going to get upset because now you're coaching in my life. You're touching my issues. Or is all of your life submitted to him? Or are you each week maybe even internally mocking? You know, it's easy to be at church each week and inside you're like, oh, that's dumb. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, outside, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. But everything is said through scorn and mockery. You, know, you can be here week in and week out and inside mock the whole thing. Are you righteous in God's eyes or your own? You know, Be honest with yourself. Don't deceive yourself and then one day find out it was a sham. Better to be honest now than be wrong and know it for all eternity. And yet this passage is really calling us to have a humility that realizes only God can declare you righteous. You know, when someone challenges an action, we're quick to defend ourselves. You know, no, I was right. That's what I should do. So that Proverbs 21, 2 says, Everyone's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord tests the heart. You know, only God tests the heart, and none of us will pass the test with 100% self-righteousness. But the good news is that Jesus came to give us his righteousness. You know, before God, I can stand as perfectly righteous. Not because of me, but because of Christ. And, oh, if you will just lean on Christ's righteousness, it can free you. It can free you from always having to go around and angrily defend yourself. You can be more quick to say, I was wrong. And listen to others critiques of you of course no one's ever going to be 100 percent right when they critique you so we need to use wisdom yet the constant need to defend ourselves and to justify all of our actions might be revealing our lack of confidence our lack of hope that i'm righteous in christ so if you attack me i can admit you're right i make mistakes but i'm righteous in god's eyes you know, confidently trusting and hoping in Christ's perfect life and righteousness can transform us so that we're not insecure people always defending ourselves. Now, not that we go to the other side to become arrogant and self-righteous, but that we humbly focus on what Christ did for us rather than what we are doing ourselves. That we realize, look, we're never going to be perfectly righteous in our parenting in our singleness, in our money usage, in our choice of where to go to school, what phone to buy, whatever. Keep adding on. Because you're always going to make a decision and then you're going to go to work, you're going to go to school and someone's going to go, you got that phone? That was dumb. If you'd been like me, you would have gone online and you would have saved and you would have done this. And you're always going to get pointed out in life how you're not living perfectly and you can get angry and rear up when you yeah, I blew that one. Man, thankfully there's forgiveness in Christ. I'm not perfect. You know, so many people, they go online and they 
ask for people's opinions, but they're really looking for validation. For pattings on the back, yep, you did that right. Good job, parent. None of us is ever going to be perfect. And so we should be humble because Christ was perfect for us. Now, I'm not saying this should make us slack. Go, well, we're never going to be perfect, so who cares? No, we want to please God, and so we still strive to, but yet we have the confidence, the hope that when we fail, it doesn't destroy us because our confidence was never in ourselves in the first place. However, Jesus saying this is going to raise an issue because, look, if Jesus is our righteousness, then do we really need the law? And you can imagine the Pharisees maybe wondering that. Well, look, is Jesus getting rid of all that we're holding to? And Jesus, though, is going to say in verses 16 through 17 that, no, there is still this continuing righteous standard. You maybe wanted this too. What should we think of the Old Testament now that we have the New Testament in Christ? Well, Jesus is going to answer that. Verse 16 in the second section, we see the continuing righteous standard because Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. The Old Testament prophecies, they foretold of this one who would come. And he would make way, he would make straight the way of the Lord. Well, that was John the Baptist's role. John the Baptist was like a bridge with one foot firmly planted in the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant, and one foot firmly planted in the new because he is the bridge pointing forward that the new way has come. Before John the Baptist, God's people had the law and the prophets that foretold of the coming of Christ and they lived by faith looking forward to what he would do and who he is. Now here, sometimes Christians have drawn too sharp a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some have said that, well look, We shouldn't really listen to what was said before. Some would even say, not even the Sermon of the Mount, because look, that was Old Covenant. We need to only listen to the New Covenant. However, Jesus is what the Old Covenant is all about. And only as we see that it pointed to him will we realize that we must read and study the Old Testament because it shows us Christ. Of course, we must now look at it through the lens of the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected Messiah to which it pointed. However, we never relegate it to just background and some character studies. Well, yeah, that's what it's good for. No, it shows us God's plan. For he's always been working out his plan of salvation through faith in his promised one who would come, be our substitute for us. Thus, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. But the other error, there's the error of, well, we just don't need anything to do with it. On the other stream of those, well, it's just all kind of the same thing. It's just one continuous line. And yet, there is a newness in Christ. He's not just another prophet in the line of prophets continuing on this line. He's radically new. He if you can, radically transformingly fulfills the old covenant. Thus, it's no longer law and prophets, but the proclaiming of the good news that God's kingdom has come. The kingdom has come because the king, Jesus, has come. Now, it's a kingdom not tied to national Israel needing to fulfill the ceremonial law and follow kosher foods. 
It's one in whether there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and we don't need to follow the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law. It's a kingdom in which the final, perfect, ultimate sacrifice came in Christ, and we don't go to the temple because He is the temple. And yet all of the Old Testament Scriptures were pointing to that. And so we see here this connection because Jesus is saying, look, I'm not getting rid of it. It's still continuing. But then he makes an interesting comment at the end of verse 16 about this kingdom. He says, and everyone forces his way into it. And one of the major challenges of reading the Bible, of interpreting it, is making sure, sure we hear the right thing. You know, sometimes we apply to ourselves passages that are true, and we need to think about them, but it's not what we're dealing with. I knew a man, he was a pastor, and he was talking to me and some other pastors, and he, is, he got to a new church. He was concerned that some of the people might not actually be believers. So he thought, you know what I'll do? I'll preach through 1 John, because in 1 John there's these tests to know that you're truly saved. However, the further he went in the series, the more the people who weren't showing fruits of salvation kept coming up and going, this is a wonderful series. And the more some people who were showing the fruit of salvation, were, who were showing it, were coming up going, Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved. You know, the wrong people were applying the message to themselves. It's like hearing a proverb about not being lazy, and you're the guy who works all the time, and you redouble your efforts to work harder. And the people who hear about the Sabbath who are lazy go, oh yeah, we need to apply these Sabbath laws. No, the Sabbath laws are for the hard-working person who never takes a break and the stop being lazy people need to apply the verses to the people who are lazy. We have to apply the right things. You know, here, there's these Pharisees who are trying to give this appearance of righteousness and yet they're not really living that way. They, they are actually mocking God's law. And Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God is taken by violence. You know, this is similar to what he told them in Luke 13. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Sin is desirable. It's enjoyable, but its pleasures are short and fleeting. He's telling them living for Christ, living for him, living for the kingdom means dying to self. And we must put our death, our sin to death by violence. You know, we're not playing games. John Owen was serious when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's a violence that needs to happen. Yet, for those who are living under the legalistic burden of the law, who are only hearing it's what you need to do, all of your efforts, all of you being righteous, that's what matters to God. To them, Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. You know, both of these messages are in the New Testament because we're different types of people. Some of you need to hear, my yoke is easy. That all of your efforts are not going to please God and you can rest in Him. Others of us need to hear, strive to enter because, eh, it doesn't matter. Jesus saved me. I can live however I want. I can be like Pharisee. I don't even have to actually obey God's commands. I can just live my life however I want to. And Jesus says, no. Strive to enter. Jesus then says, and that in order that no one will think he's saying the law doesn't matter, he says in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to go than one small stroke of the law. 
I imagine none of you went to bed last night going, I wonder if the earth's still going to be here when I wake up. I wonder if during the service, a comet that we weren't aware of is going to come in and implode and hit the earth and we're all going to go away. Well, no, we just assume the earth's here today, going to be here tomorrow, the earth, the heavens, they're just here. We don't even think about it. And yet something we take for granted will always be here actually won't always be here. Second Peter 10, sorry, 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Peter will go on to say that there will be a new heavens and new earth because this one will be done away with. What we think will last forever won't. There will be a new one. Yet, there is one thing that will never pass away. God's word. His law. Jesus says that not even one dot of it will be void. That not one little part of its promises will not be fulfilled. The dot literally means little horn. You know, think of a capital E, and you got the three bars in the vertical line, and a capital F, two bars in a vertical line. The little one to go from F to E, that's the difference. It's a dot of an I, the crossing of a T. Jesus is saying down to the smallest pen stroke, nothing that God spoke in his word and the law is going to be unfulfilled. Everything, down to the smallest detail, will come true. Now, as I prepared this week, I was kind of wondering, okay, yes, I understand that, but what does that have to do with what Jesus said before this? Like, what's the connection? Why is he saying this? And reading and reflecting, it seems as though Jesus is telling them that the law and the prophets were until John might make them think that Jesus is saying, well, look, so now Jesus is getting rid of it. Thus, Jesus is saying, look, the law, it's never going to go away. I'm not getting rid of it. I came to fulfill it. God's law is a continuing standard of righteousness. You know, we definitely relate to it differently now that Christ has come. However, Christ coming does not remove the importance of the law, for Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Earlier, we read Romans 10.4, and there it said Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Once we come to see Christ as our perfect law keeper, then we realize my willingness, my obedience, it's not my hope. Christ is. However, that does not mean that I then discard the law because it can continue to be a blessing to me as it shows me how to live by faith in Christ, a life that pleases him. Because a life that pleases God doesn't commit adultery. A life that pleases God doesn't steal. A life that pleases God has no other gods before me and all of the other commandments. And Jesus is now going to expand, though, because though the religious leaders give an external appearance of righteousness towards the law, they're actually abusing the law specifically in regards to divorce. And so we have this third section, verse 18, the test of true righteousness. Because in verse 18, Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And when the topic of divorce comes up, sadly, Christians run to two extremes. Either everything, divorce is like almost the unpardonable sin, and it's the worst thing ever, or they say nothing at all. You know, the Bible is clear that divorce is not part of God's design, for he intended 
marriage to be lifelong. More than that, God explicitly says he hates divorce. However, the Bible also teaches that though God did not design divorce, it's not his design, he does allow it and he does govern it. Even God himself divorced Israel for their continual unfaithfulness to him. Isaiah 50 verse 1, God speaks to the people and says, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Thus, the divorce should be a last resort and only for a few reasons. Even God divorced Israel after years of marital unfaithfulness to him. Now we're really getting a little ahead of ourselves because we need to consider, well, why did Jesus bring this up? Well, it's because if there's any area in which the Pharisees played fast and loose with God's law, it was this area. Because they read Deuteronomy 24, which gave divorce for an indecency, and then they took what God permitted and made it as though God was commanding to get a divorce. You know, more than there's one major group of rabbis that taught that this indecency that Deuteronomy 24 referred to could be anything as small as she burned the evening meal. And so in their culture, there was quite a bit in a frequent use of divorce. So in contrast to their abuse of God's law, Jesus boldly states that to divorce your wife and marry another is adultery. You know, see, the point is they're divorcing specifically because, hey, I want to marry her. So I'll just divorce this one and get with that one. You know, Jesus' teaching here, though, goes completely against the grain of modern thinking. You know, marriage is not merely finding fulfillment in a soulmate. Marriage is a commitment before God, and thus we vow before God and these witnesses. We're making promises to God. And yet, in a society, our society, which individual autonomy, personal happiness, complete self-fulfillment are the greatest goods, well, Jesus' words sound like death. However, it's nothing really new because when Jesus said something similar in Matthew 19, what did his disciples say? Well, then it's better not to marry. This has always sounded like death to people. You know, have you ever considered that marriage, one spouse to one spouse for life, is not very natural? Think in nature. Okay, you can point to the penguins. Yes, the penguins have one couple that's together for life, but everywhere else, animals follow their natural instincts you know they're not huddled up one mom and one dad for life we only have marriage because god gave it to us it goes against our natural impulses and yet jesus is calling us with our money with our sexual desires with all our life to submit to ourselves sorry to submit to him to deny ourselves to take the kingdom by violence you know, Jesus is offering us a completely better life than a life of temporal self-fulfillment. It's a life in which we pursue him as king, not ourselves. You know, our goals, they get reoriented. Rather than us being personally satisfied, are we glorifying him? You know, we get to seek to reflect God around us, even in our marriages that wonderful picture of God's love for the church. That's what marriage is about. 
Thus, rather than giving up marriage for cohabitation or trading in a spouse for a better one, we love our spouse through thick and thin, or as we might say, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Well, why would we do that? Well, because that's what God's like. God loves us in richer or poorer, sickness and health. He loves us through thick and thin. You know, it struck me this week that when Jesus wants to focus on the need to take the kingdom by violence, what does he attack? Their use of money and their sexual desires. Because right before this, Jesus was talking about money, and right after this, he will talk about money again. And then in the middle, he challenges us that our relationships must be submitted to God. And yet the Pharisees' refusal to submit to God's laws in these areas showed their hypocrisy. And looking around the church in the U.S. today, it shows the same hypocrisy. Sadly, Christians are willing to get divorces just as much as our non-Christian friends. I've had Christians tell me, well, life is too long just to be in an unhappy marriage. The church shows that Phil smugly justified that they're standing up for biblical sexuality, turn a blind eye and say nothing when Divorces for unbiblical reasons are happening in their church. There's no wonder that unbelievers and skeptics think we're hypocrites when we have roughly the same percentage of divorce as non-Christians. There was several years ago, a well-known pastor has a radio show and he'd said publicly, if I'm ever divorced, I'll need to step down. Until he was divorced. And then he says, this will allow me to understand my people better. Shifting standards. Outward appearance of righteousness, something different inside. And so we should pray that God would revive our own hearts and our own lives and our nations, that we might not be the hypocrites that the Pharisees were, that we might truly honor God with our marriage, our money, and all of our life. I wanted to wrap this up, though, with three important, I think, applications. And first, it is as we've stated already sometimes we need to be clear who this message is being given to because sadly sometimes those who take this message of look you need to be committed to your marriage the ones who hear that the most are those who are in abusive relationships and the ones who don't hear it are the ones who are divorcing for irreconcilable differences growing coldness falling out of love and the other modern excuses we give you know if you're being abused Talk to us and talk to the police. You know, for sake of time, I didn't dive into all the biblical grounds for divorce, but they're real. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, and at times it may be the best of bad options. But the second thing is fight for your marriage. Marriage is not easy. Be honest and real when you're struggling. You know, every single marriage is going to have problems because every single marriage has two sinners. And when two sinners get together, they're going to sin. And they're going to have issues and they're going to have conflicts and those are going to need to be worked out. And sometimes those problems get so great you need help. You two can't work it out, so get someone else. You know, Sarah and I have been married 15 years and twice we have 
talk to leaders in our church, help us think through some issues, and twice we've needed to go get counseling outside of that. There's nothing wrong with that. We all have issues. And sadly, though a lot of times people, they come to church leadership when they are at the very edge of the precipice going, I'm not sure our marriage is going to make it. Why don't you back that way up? And when you're starting to go, we're having trouble working this out, say, hey, can you help us? We're having, we, we, just, we just are at loggerheads. We can't get past this issue. And he sure thinks he's right, and I sure think I'm right. And we, we just can't work it out. We'll be honest. We're not going to look at you and go, you have problems? <laughs> Didn't know that. We all have problems. Be honest enough to admit it and fight to work them out. They're not going to just, ah, we just woke up, we were angry, went to bed, and now we woke up and we're bliss again. you got to work them out. They don't just go away. So fight. Be honest. You know, we're all sinners, and we all need the prayer and support of one another. So let's do that. But third, realize reconciliation is always God's goal. Yes, God divorced Israel, but what did God do? He took her back. Read Hosea and Gomer, how he's constantly pursuing them back. You know, books are written on all the nuances of divorce and remarriage. But notice, Jesus went on, he says, the one who marries the divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, this isn't all of Jesus' teaching, but Jesus is saying, look, the goal is reconciliation. That is okay, I'm done, I can move on. Just because you're divorced doesn't mean you can't get remarried. Just because you're in a bad marriage doesn't mean you can't work it out. This is the continued story of Gordon and Emma from the beginning. Dave Harvey again writes, Gordon's disdain for his marriage created a home ruled by hypocrisy and indifference to his wife's well-being. But Emma loved the Savior who was merciful to her and clung to him through the trials and years. Bereft of human love from the man she had wed, she threw herself on the mercy of God. The marriage ended sadly and painfully after 40 years. But in the years following the divorce, Emma still sent Gordon birthday cards and periodic letters, calling the lonely and rebellious man to God. She was tasting the sweet joy of a deep relationship with the Father and increasingly longed for Gordon to know that for himself. And one day in God's mercy, Gordon too trusted in Christ. He repented of his sins. He tasted of the reconciliation because of the ongoing mercy and grace of Emma towards him. You know, Emma surely had to die to herself and not holding on to deep bitterness, anger, resentment of how her spouse had treated her. She had to take the kingdom by violence, as this passage says. But it was a violence that led not only to her own salvation, but that of her husband. You know, Emma was living not out of a veneer of appearing righteous, but having deeply tasted that though she was a sinner, Christ died for her to make her righteous. And she was transformed into someone who, like the Savior, continues to seek out hypocritical, self-righteous people that they might be welcomed back to God. And so may we confess our self-righteousness and may we extend that same mercy and love that God has given to us. Maybe even to the spouse down the row or that person in your workplace or wherever that fits you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if it were not for your mercy, 
we would have no hope. Lord, you see past the veneer of our righteousness and you see who we are and we confess that we are not who we should be. We need your forgiveness. We need your grace. And we thank you that it is more than abundant in Christ. He is our hope. Lord, thank you that he came, that he is the king who restores us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.